0: Hello and welcome, you lovely, lovely, wonderful people. Thank you for listening. I am Giles Alderson, director of The Dead World of Darkness and producer of Serial Killer's Guide to Life and Cassette, and this is the Filmmakers Podcast. Today we are talking with wonderful director James Kent, who's not only Directed the White Queen and Mother Father Son for TV. Mother Father Son is on TV right now in the UK. But he's also directed the feature films Testament of Youth and The Aftermath, which is in cinemas now. That stars Keira Knightley and Alexander Skarsgård. So we are in good company. Myself and James sat down at Directors UK, the wonderful home for directors. If you are a director out there and you are not part of Directors UK. Why not? You get amazing deals on all sorts of bits and pieces and you get screenings and talks and classes. Directors UK, get involved. So we sat down there, myself and James, and we chatted about how he made the leap from documentaries and TV into feature films, how you work with A-list stars and how you can make a period drama starring Kira Knightley and Alexander Skarsgård called The Aftermath. Welcome, everyone. Thank you for listening. It is The Filmmaker's Podcast, and today I am delighted to say that our sponsors of this podcast are Script Pipeline. Screenwriters out there, you will have heard of Script Pipeline because they review screenplays and TV projects. Basically, they connect writers to Hollywood's top producers and managers and UK-based too. It's in its 20th year, and they have helped launch the writing talents of some of the industry's brightest talent and resulting in spec sales of over 7 million yeah this is script pipeline if you don't know of them get on it now the link is in the show notes um, their next screenwriting and TV deadline is coming up it's May the 1st and they're awarding over £55,000 this is one of those really cool competitions and companies that give out prize money for your scripts and for your work what do you think? as a screenwriter what an amazing endorsement if nothing else you win one of those competitions and boom someone's picking up your script hence what has happened on script pipeline they're such lovely people and i'm so pleased that they are sponsoring this week's episode of the podcast and if you do become a finalist and quite a few screenwriters do then you get to work with script pipeline in developing other material as well and they promote the writers and industry for a long time uh, it's something no other competition does by the way uh, and you can learn more at scriptpipeline.com and remember enter for the next competition by may the 1st may the 1st do it okay uh, link is in the show notes script pipeline thank you and we love you Okay, as you know, I've been asked to direct uh, a version of Boudica, um, while King Arthur is on the back burner. But now we have official dates: um, September and September and October, which is exciting for those cast members who I have spoken to about being in it. Um, so I've got to wait. We've got to wait. We've got to do that. In the meantime, we're making Boudica. We're making a trailer that, then, we can go and make the feature film for and Anna Rubin uh, has set up the crowdfunding campaign on Greenlit and we love Greenlit Fund who is like a, a kickstarter but much better because it's just for filmmakers uh, and Boudica is now, I think we're at 62% with a week left please go support it, link is in the show notes ok, events that you should turn up to uh, first of all it's a Make Your Film event April the 23rd with myself and Dom Le obviously we've got Alice Lowe already booked in tickets are still available Get there, network, do it, and the Rain Dance Film Festival May Day Ball, May the 1st, and you can get 20% off. Networking, you have to do these things. Get to both events. Link to both are in the show notes, and I'll see you there. So before we get to today's podcast, a couple of indie film shout-outs. Um, some people have been amazing over the last couple of weeks. It's ben Hyland, uh, Jeff Wolfendun, uh, Mark Brown, Gareth Foy. Ian O'Neill, Performance Insurance, Andy Mark Simpson, Film Pro Productivity, thanks, Carter, and Dan Knight. Um, you guys and girls, thank you so much. And also, a huge Filmmakers Podcast shout out to Robbie McCain. Now, Robbie McCain, he's uh, an upcoming filmmaker himself, but he edited this podcast you're about to hear. Oh, yeah. Thank you, Robbie. Uh, it looks like he's going to be part of the team. Looking forward to that, um, and welcome let's welcome him. Follow him on Twitter. Do you know what? Let's follow him on Twitter now. If you're listening to this, shout out to Robbie McCain, right? Follow him at, I'm looking it up, follow him at Robbie McCain. I'll put a link in the show notes. Why not? Okay, let's get to today's podcast with the wonderful and delightful James Kent. Enjoy, learn, relax, and thank you for listening. It is my absolute delight to welcome to the Filmmakers Podcast, James Kent. Hello, mate. Morning, Giles. How are you? I'm very well. <laughs> We're in Directors UK. They've been very generous and let us have one of their, well, they're very nice rooms. It's posh, isn't it? It really is posh. posh. Yeah. We've got ourselves a cup of tea. There's a bookshelf over there in filmmaking. There's a poster of Don't Look Now over there. Love that
1: movie. Yeah, yeah, it's
0: a great movie. Now, Directors UK are fantastic. They're really helpful for not only young filmmakers, but actually established as well. How long have you been... With them, you've been with them a while.
2: Uh, about, I, th- I suppose about 10 to 15 years. Yeah, yeah. And honestly, they you have to remember what it was like before they came along in the guys that they are now in. It was much more sort of slapdash and it's such a professional organisation and, and it's such a great resource for directors. <laughs> the thing I love about coming here... To directors uk is that you get to meet other directors and you'd be astonished how little that happens Mm. in a director's career because you don't go on other directors sets or true and it's just great you actually get to realize there's a community out there which is which is
0: so reassuring Yes. For all of us. Yeah, no, I agree. I love I love meeting other directors. I love going to events and which is what I bang on about in the podcast a lot is go to events and meet other directors and filmmakers. And by doing this podcast, I've met some amazing, amazing directors now. And we're all sort of collaborating, we're all helping each other and sending mm. scripts. And I think in a community we work in, it's so important mm. to find those collaborators. Yeah, and also realize that the kind of setbacks
2: that you have, you know, the project that falls apart, whatever, is is actually not about you. It's actually about the way the process works mm. and i think it's a little bit like being an actor i think once you realize that there are auditions you're not going to get if you like then it, then in a way you don't take it personally and you realize you know this is the, this is just the setup of the career that you've chosen Yeah,
0: that's so true. That's a really interesting way of looking at it. Let's talk about your start, because you made documentaries, right? And you moved to TV, then moved to film. But let's talk about that beginning and why you wanted to get into film in the first place. How did it start for you?
2: Well, funnily enough, I was at uni, and I actually wanted to be a journalist. So I applied for newspapers, and I applied for the BBC, and I got into the BBC and not into newspapers. So I suppose my first love was telling stories and getting out there, which, of course, connects with documentaries. You can see the connection between journalism and documentaries. Absolutely. So, you know, once I would committed to TV at the BBC, this great traineeship they had, then, um, then, you know, I was on the course, if you like, for a visual
0: career rather than a print career. Mm-hmm. And what, how did that move forward then? How did you go from finishing that course to actually going, right, let me get my hands on a camera and I can go and yeah. shoot something?
2: You know what? It was very different. We're going back now to the 90s. Sure. And in those sure. days, there weren't lightweight cameras. There weren't. So you always needed a crew. So even when you were making documentaries, the idea of this sort of term, self-shooting documentary director, it didn't apply because, you, you know, these great big cameras that you needed a, a cameraman. Have to be straight there, and so there were very few camera women. uh, You know, could handle. So you always went out with the crew, and I did a couple of years on Newsnight, Mm -hmm. uh, nightly news program, very stressful. And I just didn't find that it was enough of a kind of film that you ended up with that you felt it was yours to own and put your name to. So hence my sort of challenge, my battle to get across to documentaries. Um, which I kind of did because I was inside the BBC. The great thing of being in the BBC is they have these attachments, which means you can go to another program for three months and try your hand at it. And if they want to keep you on, they can. And this is part of being a big organization. And so I went to arts documentaries, went all over the world. Oh, fantastic places. I went to Afghanistan. I went to Uganda and the United States. Amazing. Amazing. And 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 you know, did war films, did investigative films, did sort of foot in the door films where you confronted villains. I did I just loved it. And really the great thing about being a documentary director, and I'm sure a lot of people listening to this podcast are documentary directors, is that you are there's just like five people in a van, you know, mm. and um you get this camaraderie and this sense of you know, you can shoot till 11 o'clock at night if you have to. Mm-hmm. It's just this freedom. I remember when I did my first ever drama, which was about a, a famous cuckoo writer, and we were in the Mediterranean, and I wanted to do some shots of the sailing boat that she was on from a clifftop. So I went up with the cameraman, didn't tell anybody, got to the clifftop was looking down on this yacht and all of a sudden this white van turned up with the first assistant director second assistant director third with bollards and ticker tape to go across the top of the cliff and I thought what the hell is happening and it was this sense that in drama everything has to be planned you're Mm -hmm. not allowed to go off piste and sort of freewheel it It's quite a lesson for me about the difference between, you know, documentaries and and
0: drama. Absolutely. Do you know what? We've just, we're making a documentary at the moment called Food for Thought. And uh, we've found normally going to film in LA on the beach would be an absolute nightmare. No, not for us. We just picked up the camera, <laughs> yeah. put it on my shoulder, me and down the presenter, and we had uh, a wonderful uh, guest being interviewed. And We just walked along the beach yeah. and shot this beautiful Yeah, the right, light, right light. everything. No yeah. one said anything because it yeah. looked like we were just some, you know what I mean? Yeah. Small team. Yeah. And yeah. I think that makes, that's the big difference between documentaries sometimes and, and film is it's a small team. You can literally yeah, although, put your camera. Although, uh,
2: to be honest, one of the things, like, it's quite difficult when you're doing period drama, obviously, because mm. the world has to look old. Yes. But when you're doing contemporary, thrillers or police procedurals or whatever you know it is still possible to get your cameraman or woman to just grab a camera get some shots you know even shoot the artist as she's thinking at the kitchen i always remember maxine peak in a wonderful series uh called criminal justice mm-hmm. and um you know i saw shots of her just sat at a kitchen countertop and i thought i asked the director how did he get there he said you know what she was just thinking between takes and i said to the the director of photography, I said, just grab the camera and get some shots of her now. And I think that freedom in documentary is a really good thing to hold on to when you're doing drama because sometimes they're your most precious shots.
0: Yeah, yeah. no, I totally agree. It's fascinating, isn't it? I think those, uh, uh, those moments between are just amazing. You can... And you never know what they're thinking, so you can put it Yeah, anywhere. you can put it anywhere.
2: Yeah. Yeah, one of the tricks I do is with actors, I say, look, we're just going to spend 10 minutes here and I want you to do, give me different looks. You know, look look angst-ridden, look pensive, look hopeful, look... And, and it does give you those moments in a drama to just put them in and concentrate on that one character. Because quite often, one of the things you're trying to do is weight the story more towards a particular character at a particular moment. Mm-hmm. And one way of doing that is to give them some airtime. Right. So it's, 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 a, it's, a, it's a neat little trick that I'm sharing.
0: I like it. I yeah. think it's really important. And I have found that sometimes time is against you. Yeah. So how do you deal with that then when you, you've got no time, but yet you're going, I need these shots of a pensive moment or a look moment. How do you get them? How do you find the well, time? Well,
2: th- those shots take really little time to get.
0: So normally I just make sure during the shoot,
2: we give ourselves two or three moments to get those. And actually it's really being honest with your first assistant director who's obviously clock watching the whole time. Mm. What matters to you? One of the things that, you know, it takes time for a director to learn is when you're in the edit suite, there is really only you and the material. You can forget your crew. You can forget your director of photography. It's actually no one cares anymore. Mm. That's the blunt thing. You had a wonderful time. You made some great friends. Sure. you worked really collaborated together productively together. But the the thing that now only matters is what you're staring at on the on the avid. And so you need to be really clear with your with your ad. Now, at this point in the story of our shoot, what do I really want? And if we drop a scene in order to get what I really now instinctively feel I need, we need to do that. You're so right. In that edit room, it is just... Yeah, it's you and the editor. It is, it is. It's you and the, and the producers, you yeah. know. And, occasionally, um, if they pop by. Occasionally, it. if they pop by, yeah. Um, <laughs> so yes, you're trying to, it's basically that's the materials you now have to carve out your story. Yeah, which is great. And again, with documentaries, I think it's quite good to remember in documentaries that you, you don't really have a story until you're in the editing suite. Mm. So you just have all this material. And it's, again, something I brought from documentaries is, you know, what we need is the material. It's not the script we yeah. need We need the material I feel is going to tell that story. And um, it's interesting, I think directors come from all kinds of backgrounds. And, and I wish I had some of the skills of directors from other backgrounds that I don't have. So for example, theatre, you know, that understanding of the, her- the rehearsal process, and how important that is, and also how to conduct rehearsals, you know, how to get the best out of your actors during a rehearsal Be- and not being scared of actors. I think Theatre directors have that really strongly, whereas if you come from, let's say, commercials, you have a really strong sense of visuals and striking visual storytelling and the way picture and music can work. So that's what they might bring, whereas documentaries, you have a more sort of freedom with the material. And I think each director, depending on where they're coming from,
0: brings that strength. It's true, yeah, from different backgrounds and all sorts. That's fascinating. Yeah, I agree with that totally. And from doing this podcast, how I've you know, over a hundred people I've met, everyone is from a different background, different journey into becoming a filmmaker and different ways of raising the finance to make their documentaries or films. And I think that's really interesting. How did you make the leap then from... Documentaries mm. to TV and then eventually into film I was actually making a documentary in a really great
2: independent company called to wall tv they 're quite big mm. um, and they there was a time this is going back as i say about fifteen, eighteen years when BBC four was doing dramas, doing little biopics didn 't cost that much okay. um, and actually, it was quite good if a documentary maker made it because they didn 't start asking for bells and whistles and like big lighting rigs and stuff. They kept everything quite small. So um, there's this beautiful cookery writer called Elizabeth David, which our mothers might know about because she brought garlic into the country and olive oil back in the 50s. And she had this really rampant love life. And uh, (laughs) it's very saucy, to use the pun. Mm -hmm. And and then when this man that she fell in love with ditched her, uh, she had a stroke and lost her sense of taste. So it's a really great story. And she traveled all, all around, as I say, the Mediterranean. And I was asked, would I do that? Because it was such a low budget. And I did it. And, and and actually off the back of it, I got three agents offers for drama. And I took one of those. And of course, once you're in that world, you're thinking, uh, you know, if I don't do something to follow up, is it worth having an agent? So then I did Poirot and I did what they call Air Miles, which is sort of doing projects that sort of show that you're committed to the genre and that you're learning this, the kind of craft of being a, a television drama director. And I had to give up, you know, documentaries that I really loved, but I'm, I really don't regret
0: that move. Uh, it was, I
2: was lucky enough to have the choice, if you like.
0: Yeah. I, I'm absolutely, how was that first moment when you stepped on set? I think was it EastEnders was your first? Yeah. Well, EastEnders was a, <laughs> EastEnders actually, came a year before
2: that and actually put me right off drama because Mm. I went to EastEnders and it was an absolute disaster. I hadn't got any training in multi-camera, so four cameras shooting off at the same time. And it was funny because on the Friday, I was there for the first week and I was doing a block, so that's four episodes. And uh, I've been there Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. And on the Friday, the producer said, look, if you don't complete on time on Monday, we're going to have to say goodbye. Wow. So I went home over the weekend Fuck. and I thought, what can I do about this? <laughs> yeah. And I thought, i tell you what I'll do. I'll just feel different. I'll actually, because there's nothing to lose. I'll, I'll be a bit more assertive in, in how I am. Mm. So on Monday morning, I went and said, right, can we have Tamsin Althwaite on set? Right, I need camera three to be ready and you know more. One other thing I did was I bought a little box of chocolates for each of the four cameramen. There were mm-hmm. only cameramen in those days. And I gave it all to them because I knew they would be my allies. Yes. And I said, time is an alphabet on set nine, you know, by 9 a.m. So basically, I sound as if I did know what I was doing, although I knew no more than Friday. <laughs> and that evening, we finished on time. And wow. Tuesday, we finished on time. And Wednesday, we finished on time. It still put me off because I, I really hated multi camera. It's just you're not in control. No. Documentary is all single camera. Mm-hmm. Almost all drama is obviously single camera. And um, so actually, I didn't go back to drama for a couple of years until I made this cookery writer drama, right. which, which, um, which was single camera. So um, I fell in love then with drama. That was the And I, I, I really fell in did love. fall in love. One of the things that I loved about drama over documentary is this it's like a three dimensional space. You know, documentary is quite a flat, mm-hmm. if you think about it. It's interviews, mm-hmm. it's shots of the Grand Canyon or whatever. Yeah. But in drama, you, people can travel through space and you can follow them and come around onto them. So you're playing a game of chess with chess pieces. Mm-hmm. And that was one of the things I really loved. And the other thing was about emotion. The, the, I'm quite an emotional person. And I think as a director, it sort of allows me to express myself in a drama through music, through performance, Uh, And through beauty, actually, beauty of houses, beauty of landscapes. So all all of them can work together to create an experience for the audience. And I felt that, for me, I was getting more payback than in a documentary.
0: I've silenced you, Giles. Th- that was so lovely. <laughs> but do you know what? The di- it's true. The difference between documentary and film is and TV is exactly that. With TV, you can control yeah. it more. You, you're in. It's your visual yeah. medium to go. Uh, you can put the camera where you want. Yeah. But documentary sometimes you, you don't you can't, have the because you choice. are you are privy to the uh, willingness of your contributor. Yes.
2: It's funny, really, because in the last project. Um, we had, we had a, an actress who became extremely un- unwell during the project. Mm-hmm. And there was a scene where I had to sit in for her and be her voice. Like sh- we shot on her and then she left to go to the doctors. And um, I sat in her place and I, w- I read her lines to the actor who we were then filming. Mm-hmm. And I felt so self-conscious. Uh-huh. And I thought, actually, this is why actors put their faith in directors. Is that there's yeah. nothing between them and the audience going that person is just pretending yep. to be X. Yep. It? They look really idiotic pretending to be X. And I, it dawned on me just how much trust there is in the director to say, look, do you want to gravitate it that way or this way just to make it a bit more credible? And I, I yeah. Because I, I was really bad at doing what she did.
0: <laughs> <laughs> it makes I come from the acting background, so I I okay. understand what yeah. actors go through, and I'm very much a, well, I like to think I'm an actors director. I love working with actors and bringing performances out and rehearsal and all that work. Um, but it's so true if if you haven't acted, it's so important to like you say sit in their shoes and yeah. go oh oh yeah okay. Because to shape a performance and try and get that out of them, is, is whoa, it's yeah, um, really tough.
2: And how actually sometimes, and I am uh, very conscious, I've done this a few times, you are um, guilty of, of of treating them not in the right way. There was a project I did relatively recently and, I, and, and, and there was an amazing scene that was much better than I'd anticipated. And as a result, I needed a bridging scene Mm. to the next scene, which was not in the script. So I went up to the actors and I said, look, we're going to have to do a little extra moment now. And it was really interesting. I obviously phrased it really badly because they interpreted (laughs) that as having done the big scene wrongly in some way. Ah. And I was trying to get a get out by doing a transitional moment. And it was like, it wasn't. It It was because they'd done it so brilliantly. And I couldn't quite turn them around from feeling that. And and, And it must have been the way I'd expressed it. But it's like they do need such careful handling Mm. because they're the ones who are so, in the way they are particularly exposed. Yeah, you know, it's their mum and dad and the audience who are going to go. That person's pretending, Mm -hmm. and so they're, you know, they're not they're not not conscious that they're pretending. You know, they know they are, so they need a lot of reassurance that everything they're doing is going in the right direction absolutely and i'm still learning about that
0: it's <laughs> really making the mistakes it's really hard to be a great actor you have yeah. to be brilliant at making it yeah. look like you're not acting that's right and that's really hard so let's talk about that then you moved then into film yes yeah, so i went into well i went i so i did lots of drama mm-hmm,
2: lots uh tv drama so um i did uh thrillers on itv something called Marchlands. oh yeah it yeah. was very cool Fantastic. it was set across three time zones in yeah. the same house and uh-huh. a brilliant script I did a thriller called Inside Men, yes. which is a heist movie, if you like, in a in a, in a a counting house, cash, being, mm-hmm. being counted. And then I ghost stories and, I, I, you know, White Queen, which was yeah, historical. White Queen, fantastic, with Rupert Graves. Yeah, That's absolutely. Right. Yeah. Rebecca Ferguson yeah, is Rebecca now a big Ferguson, star. Yeah. Not that I had anything to no, do with do that. you know what? You've
0: done that quite a lot, though. You've worked with actors who are on the rise, are oh, they? I've been lucky, but I mean... Yeah. Uh,
2: It's funny, actually. Rebecca Ferguson. When we cast her, you listeners may know her from um, Mission Impossible. Absolutely. Um, When we cast her in The White Queen, she nobody knew her at all. And I remember the producers were very canny. A guy called George Carey at Company Pictures saying, "She's going to be a star. She's going to be a star." And although The White Queen met with sort of mixed reviews Mm -hmm. in this country, did really quite well in the states. um, She is a big star. A huge start and in a, in a very short amount of time, actually, because yes. Tom Cruise cast in mission impossible, like literally a year after the White Queen. So I did loads of TV dramas and I'm sure I'll do more. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, uh, I got a call from a lovely producer called Rosie Allison at Heyday Films, a very cool company. David very Heyman, cool. they're the biggest oh, Harry right. Potter, Harry Potter world, yeah. Gravity
0: paddington mm-hmm. you know, it, it couldn't be a better company you must have been at that point going whoa okay getting a call from heyday films this is pretty special yeah it was something i was not
2: going to give up willingly mm-hmm. and it was incredibly hard still to get your first film fi- financed yeah. um because it's, because a film like testament of youth which was the project that i was uh, attached to yeah. um you know first of all we had an actress alicia vicando who wasn't that well known um, playing Vera Britton in mm-hmm. the film. And we also had a debut director.
0: Mm-hmm. Which is you.
2: Totally unknown in film. Sure. And, um, and then you also have to probably go to five or six different financiers. Soft funding, BBC Films, yep. BFI, mm-hmm. Screen Yorkshire, hard funders, if that's what they're called, <laughs> Lionsgate. <laughs> yeah, uh, You know, people actually properly investing money in the hope that the film will get a profit. So you're pitching yourself the whole time. And obviously the various moments of the film – can go down and it really did nearly go down about two weeks before filming wow so i gave a great really a great chunk of my salary to try and get it over the line and all of that so but i sort of felt it it was by then you're so you'll know this it's You're so really, invested you're so invested giles yeah, it's like you yeah. can do anything for this project to happen and yeah and then one morning i woke up and we were on the pre-shoot and it was like I mean we were literally signing contracts at midnight before the pre-shoot which if they weren't signed, it's like Brexit last minute. You're like, you're not going to make this film. It was that close to it not happening. Um, And then I had to just honestly, that remains one of two great experiences in my life in terms of filmmaking. Uh, The other one was the Auschwitz film, just to be in Auschwitz, but doing Testament of Youth such a beautiful story uh, with Kit Harrington, Alyssa mm-hmm. Vikander, and then Taron Egerton, obviously yeah. from Kingsman. And Again, he be... wasn't big at the time. No, un- totally, unknown. totally he, unknown. He'd shot Kingsman, but it hadn't come out. Right. Um, and I was just incredibly lucky. Actually, it was, I mean, you realize you look back and think actually all those things, it's like the tennis balls on the net and it could drop either side. Mm-hmm. And in that instance, it
0: actually dropped on my side of the net.
2: It could so easily have dropped the other way. Totally.
0: Yeah, I remember the first day, uh, we were about to shoot the dare, and yeah. I lost my location. Was, it's the day before shooting, and all I had some friends coming over to be yeah. sort of the stag dude, But what what do you do? What did you do? I searched for the whole day when I should have been prepping uh, for another yeah. area you that would to, work, yeah. and we eventually we found somewhere. Yeah. But it was horrible. I was like, it was, I'm just like, no, it's not going to happen. Yeah, Pull, yeah. It's going to be pulled. How are we going to do this? We can't find anywhere.
2: Yeah, in testament of youth. I put, uh, you know, so I put those.
0: Marks like
2: every day on my uh-huh. desk, like on a piece of paper, and cross yeah. them off as we got nearer and nearer to the ship. <laughs> really, oh, thinking, gosh. this is the day it may not happen. Oh, yeah, great, cross it off, you know, <laughs> like,
0: like the Spitfire pilots do when they've got you know, they've shot down Germans,
2: yes, planes, yes, so like in prison. Another day gone, another, another yeah, yeah.
0: <laughs> how did it feel then, that first moment on set, then of the feature film, and how prepped were you? How did you feel when you just sort of said, you know, action on oh. your first shot?
2: You know, I mean, one of
0: the Good things about doing
2: quite a lot of television drama is that sort of, look on a relatively small budget of a film. I mean, it wasn't that small. It was seven million pounds. It sounds mm. like a lot. I'm sure to most people listening, but it's actually quite small for pure drama. The scale of crew is really not so different from a TV crew. You know, mm. the trucks, there are lights, there are, you know, makeup, costume, da, 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 da. Um, so that meant I wasn't f- sort of undone by just seeing which i think i might have been if i'd just done that twice before but i'd been on tv sets a lot and actually it really helps that you've got experienced crew i had a wonderful director of photography rob hardy mm, he's, he's amazing, amazing. Yeah. ex machina weirdly I mean, wow. Mission impossible as well yeah ex machina yeah. visible woman yeah you know he, he's a great great dop um and a great first ad and a designer and, and they sort of help you and a producer obviously mm. calm you down it's, there's like a key relationship which is you and the dop mm. And there's a little bit of a battle of wills. What is this film? Re- I know we've talked about it. We've got all these visual references. But actually, now that we're here in this scene, yeah. these visual references only slightly apply. I mean, we have, you know, we, It's a two-hander dialogue in a forest. I remember it was, it was two of them in the forest having an argument, Kit Harrington and lissy Vikander. And it was like, okay, so now what's it really going to look like? And actually, really, what? Actors, what what are you going to sound like? Where they're um, going to move to? Yeah, or they're, do you... they're stressed and tense. Mm. It's day one, mm. and they don't quite know how they sound, and is it what I want? And yep. so there's a there's a sort of, and also you're aware that the actors need are going to need pushing, the areas where they're a little bit weak in the role, you know, a little bit. I would say with both those actors that were amazing for me at the end by the end But they definitely had areas. that I was a little anxious about so you're trying to sort of push them out of those areas mm. And so there's quite a lot of tension going on internally in your head. How do you make this thing? cohere?
0: yes, did you rehearse beforehand with very them? little I mean one of the ah.
2: things that like two days or something um Kit was doing Game of Thrones and it's like really hard. I mean, and on the recent film, it's just so hard to get them in a room for two days because they're all on other projects. Right. Um, But we did do enough to talk through the scenes and just kind of get to feel each other a little bit. You Mm -hmm. know, how how are we going to be as a, as a, as a unit, you know, what's the chemistry going to be? Yeah. Um, And I think just literally just to talk through and bond a bit, laugh, have a sandwich. It really wasn't much. Normally these things happen, people listening who who do direct quite a bit will know they tend to grab people at the read-through. And you, know, you have the read-through mm. and then there's like a couple of days when they schedule people in because they're free and they're available and they're having yeah. costume fittings or yes. makeup stuff, or whatever. Yeah. And that's when you rehearse. But, but I'm so envious of directors who go, oh yeah, we had 10 days rehearsal.
0: It's yeah.
2: like, wow, that'd be amazing. I would I love amazing. that. Yeah, it's just, it's I'd so unlikely. Yeah. It's so yeah.
0: hard to get. I, yeah. What I find I do is I rehearse when I'm on set. So not just on, but so afterwards or lunchtime, I yeah. go, right, let's go with whoever who's in the makeup test. Right. Yeah. Let's go do that scene for a minute because you don't have time on set. Cameras are ready to roll. No, and you, really you really don't. You really don't. If you, there's a problem, you're like, oh, yeah. this could eat into the whole yeah. day. So you've got to be on it.
2: And also I think sometimes when you're editing and there are problems with scenes, you realize, you know, if the writer had been around and we'd mm. rehearsed it and the writer been and heard it, maybe we might have spotted that yes before we shot it yeah you know i mean in a way rehearsals is, is really about problem solving yeah um and uh, you know problem solving because then sometimes you feel oh we got that scene we delivered it and it's only later you discover that it's overwritten or or the actors are playing it slightly not quite in a way that works now mm. and you might have found that if you'd actually investigated it yeah before the all in, cri- you know, the critical moment of filming, because everything becomes money and time. It takes so little money
0: to rehearse. Yeah. Or if you can't get the actors, it's very difficult. But no, yeah. I totally agree. You find so much in the edit, you go, wow, you end up ADRing load of stuff because you go, well, we should have just thought of exactly. that before. Uh, or got them to say it just yeah. both ways. Say it both yeah, ways, exactly, just in case.
2: Exactly. One of the things I'm still struggling with is this sense of, particularly when you do period drama, because mm. what happens to the period drama is your stars turn up and they 're in costume already yeah. they 're made up, their hair is done. Mm. they have a bevy of people you know the costume maker, them, they make, them make them look, them look immaculate it 's quite an intimidating person that you 're looking at because they 're not the real person that you 've met in rehearsal had a cup of tea with you know two months earlier they 've transformed into something else mm. and one of the things I think rehearsal helps is to imprint on everybody actually what they're really like is they're just actors trying to do as good a job as possible just like you are. Yes, they're now wearing, you know, an incredible dress or and a fantastic wig and they're made up and they're looking formidable or whatever it is or incredibly beautiful, but they're still the same person that you met that first time you ever met. Mm-hmm. And I think all those, all those accoutrements in a way get in the way um, of you being honest with the actor. And I think that's what rehearsal can help do. I think it's just about having enough of a relationship by the time you do day one, not that you're finding it by the time you're in week three. Mm. You know what I mean? That's yeah. not... And you don't want them to be finding the character in week three because you've shot two weeks of material. And sometimes the biggest scenes are early on to Sod's law because
0: that's the location. It's very difficult sometimes to see the big picture. You've got to literally take yourself out of that scene for yeah. a moment and go, okay, let me look at the arcs again. How do you deal with that then on a, you know, an eight week shoot or a bigger shoot? Yeah, yeah. We're dealing with lots of costumes, lots of props, lots yeah. of excitement.
2: One thing I did for Testament of Youth was I wrote down everybody's character, like let's say the lead character, I wrote down each of her scenes and where she wasn't, just her story mm. in, in order. So it's like I almost tracked her journey yeah. without everybody else. Just like, what is Vera thinking? What is she? Do? And I had that as an order so that when I spoke to Elissa Vakanda on set, I was quite clear, even though the scene may be about lots of other things, like where's he at? Maybe it's his scene. But where does she need to be in this scene to make her next scene a continuity from the scene for her that she's just shot. And I think if you do that for each of your main characters, it sort of isolates them away from the other characters. Because they're not thinking, if I'm Kit Harrington, Testament of Youth, if I'm his character, he's only living his journey in the film. He's not living her journey. Totally. She's impacting on his journey. Mm-hmm. And obviously that's what's happening in the scene. But he's going to go away with a whole set of new parameters from what's just happened in his scene. And that's how actors think only about their role. Yep. They're listening to the other role and they're changing as a result of it, but they're only changing in the sense of what they are already. And I think that's quite an important thing to do. I also always tell the actors not necessarily where they're going, but definitely what they've just done. It's really incredible, actually, how they often need reminding of that. And it was they, they may well have shot that scene seven days earlier yeah exactly so or they may not have shot the scene of course absolutely still be to come. 10 days later yeah. so just saying that you've done this you've done that yeah you know this is now what you're confronting just bear that in mind yeah and um i think it maybe for them it's just hearing it vo- vocalized mm-hmm. in their head they sort of know it but hearing somebody just go right this is where we're at just sort of ground anchors them into the scene so that i do and also, one thing I really would love, and I've never had the opportunity, is to have editing on s- nearby.
0: Oh, okay. Mm.
2: Always when you shoot TV drama, I think it's financially, the editor's always back in London or whatever, mm. but actually it would be fantastic to have somebody editing in the hotel, so that yeah. actually on the Wednesday night, you know, there's a big scene coming up on the Thursday or the Friday, just to go and watch the scenes mm. and talk with the editor about you know, what do we really need to get in the scene? Do we need a line change? Or, yep. you know, maybe talk to the writers, that sort of proximity would be something I would really, really love. Yeah. And I will actually ask for that if I get the opportunity again.
0: I got lucky on the dare I Because it was in the studio, yeah. I, I, there was an editor putting a, a rough cut together. But what I found was that by the time you looked at that scene, it might be three or four days oh, yeah. later, I, I still want it. Because it's important for the editor to go, you missed a hand here. You missed a, you, 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 yeah. there's no cuts. I don't know how to cut yeah. from there to there. So yeah. I, I need something else.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's funny really, as a director, I recently did a, a documentary series with big name drop here, Will Smith. Whoa. And um I did all his bits. He he was presenting this thing called One Strange Rock. Yeah. Which is a big National Geographic series. Excellent. And they wanted a director to come in and just do the Will Smith bits. But <laughs> yes, it was please. produced <laughs> yeah, that's me. I'll do it, I'll go to Malibu. <laughs> yes, Ten exactly. days, Will Smith, I do that. Yeah. But it had a huge director producing it called Darren Aronofsky. Of course, it's amazing. Um yeah. did Mother and of course like yeah, that. Yeah. and um He said, look, you're going to have to watch me for a day just because you you can see what I want from your material you're going to shoot. you were like, that sounds brilliant, right? Brilliant. yeah." you know what? Watching him, he's a very different director. This is what I mean about Directors UK, meeting directors. Mm. He is so different to me. Obviously, he's super talented, so it works. He's really um, uncom- I mean, really uncompromising. I mean, he was shouting at the DP, get back in the corner, I want a wider shot. No, wider, wider. And, and like, you know, Will, stand there. No, stop. Stand- now do your shoelaces. Now do that. And it was like, he was wow. so like, this is my way or it's no way. Yeah, okay. And he's a total auteur. Mm-hmm. And he's come out of the New York Film School. And it's like, this is the way I direct. And I can't be like, I'm just temperamentally not could sure, never be you, like yeah, that not that kind of person you can see how that works because it's like this is i get what i need mm. i get what i need so when i'm in the edit i have as few regrets as possible
0: tell us about the journey here from testament of youth doing a bit more tv and then then making the aftermath
2: yeah well um you know you're only as good as your last Piece of work. And your aware. last piece
0: of your work was fantastic. So Testament yeah. Youth is an amazing film. I love a that Brilliant cool. film. Uh,
2: what happens is you get sent scripts which are not dissimilar to the film that you've made. Right. So if you've done a period romance, you get sent period romances. Yes. Which is what I was sent. Not, um, not exclusively, but you're, in a way you're most qualified... To do that. In their yeah. eyes
0: to do that because... Because there's a piece of evidence there that you can do it. And was so, that a problem? Did you, did you rebel against that? Were you trying to make something? I, I, yeah,
2: a little. Well, not, like, not with the aftermath, because I love that script and, and I love working with BBC films. Mm. Other scripts of the same genre, um, I did rebel against. It's not about what I like to do. It's about what's really good on the page. Yes. And that, you can, it could be horror, it could be thriller, it could be period romance. So mm. I wasn't trying to t- sort of box myself in but you do get boxed you're fighting against getting boxed in yeah and you know it's not easy getting any film finance and the aftermath was not easy getting finance it was obviously helped a lot once keira knightley came on board because then you get like a studio like fox yes in this instance fox searchlight you basically pay for it all apart from a bit of bbc films funding right whereas with testament i'd gone out to get this four or five different pots of money um and also an actor can see that you've done a really lovely film. Mm. So you're getting an actor up at the next stage.
0: Got you. How did Kira come on board then? How did, did she get sent the script? Were you on board yeah, first? So, yeah, I was on board. Yeah. And she was sent the script. Yeah, I mean, you know,
2: actors read scripts and help that my agent and her agent were at the same agency. Great. at uh, United Agents. Mm-hmm. And um, Lindy, her agent, see me work with Olivia Colman and Taryn Edgerton, who are her clients, and they had a great time. So this was a role she could be she could own and she'd only recently become a mother mm-hmm. and she also wanted a role where she could play her age so sort of 32 yeah. 33 mm-hmm. so all those things appealed to her and of course then she was on board uh, she's also represented in the states by CAA the big american agency would also represent Alexander Skarsgård so they brought him the script and then he came on board and then finally Jason came on board so you're 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 putting the pieces in place to be honest, once Kira was on board, the film was much more likely to happen than not happen, but not guaranteed to happen, you know, until you've mm. got all the cast. So in between all this trying to get the aftermath to happen, I embarked on yet another career move. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> not, many, not many genres left, which was comedy, stand up. No, no. no yeah, it was, no, no, uh, it surprised me. Yeah. No, no. I went off to, to the States and did American TV. Yes. I made a yeah. big, which, which is kind of harder to break into than you might imagine because, of course, I had to pay for a British director to fly over there and mm-hmm. do an episode of... And so I did something called Eleven Twenty Two Sixty Three, which yeah. was a, a show with James Franco. I did an episode of that. Yeah. And then I did an episode of American Crime, which is a very cool series uh, run by a guy called John Ridley mm-hmm. for ABC TV. And then I did a pilot. Yes. So I did some American TV, which I really loved. But the good thing about American TV, as opposed to British TV, is yeah. you only, f- you sort of, they fly you in, and it takes between three and four weeks to do an episode. So it doesn't necessarily um, derail your film project. When you do British TV, you're basically treated like a film director. You're doing all the prep, all the shoot, all the post, and all the kind of post post, you know, the music and the grade. Sure. So it's probably a four to five-month job. and And that's very hard if you've got film projects because your actor may become... You may find an actor all of a sudden and yep. the whole thing's happening mm-hmm. and you're halfway through your British TV gigs. So the American thing works quite well if you're just wanting to go there, do something quickly
0: and be out of it. Did you find that, that lack of control, if you like, mm. was it kind of nice for a little bit to just go, cool, I'm going to come in, direct this? Or was it, mm. no, you're still, not, still the same as mm. me. I'd be. Like, I'm a oh. little
2: bit ambivalent about it, if I'm okay. honest. I mean, you would not believe... So basically... Tell me, this is boring. When you go in and do an American gig, you're hired under the Directors Guild of America. You pretty well have to be a member of the Directors Guild of America, right? And they have quite strict rules about: you do seven days prep, you do seven days shoot, and you do about four days in the edit, and then they fly you home. So wow. it's, it's actually about three weeks of work. Okay, but of course they can completely re-edit your episode That's what once I mean. you've yeah. gone. They're only adhering to the Directors Guild rules right showrunners i mean to be honest they didn't do massive re-edits of my thing but they did there were changes which i knew nothing of and you know you don't see it till it goes out so i remember i did (laughs) the (laughs) one thing that you're left to cast are what's called day players people come in just little roles and there's a day to do that so that they put a day aside for me to do that and these people came in and i thought oh god i think in these several roles are not right i'd like to get some more people in and they went no 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 that was your day to cast those day plays. There are no more auditions. That is that is it. <laughs> wow. You choose from that list. I chose from the list. These are people who had like two lines. And then the showrunner went, I'm not so sure this person's right. I think we should have X. So even that wow. I was overridden on. So it can have a downside. Mm-hmm. You're very much in the hands of how trusting the showrunner is and what kind of a show is that. To be honest, Giles, I've only had two or three experiences of it. Sure. It may be if you go and do Westworld mm-hmm. or something else, you're given massive latitude and nobody, and yeah. people just let. I mean, there are channels like HBO which are famously more trusting. Yes. Than a network like ABC or CBS that have a very particular feel. Mm-hmm. You know, their shows have a very strong, slightly vanilla feel. Yes. If you go do something for... Uh, even Netflix, uh, or HBO or Hulu or something, there's m- they, they definitely want a stronger medicine. They, 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 you know, they've got much wider choices that a director can take. Mm-hmm. And so you probably would have a more authorial time directing on those kinds of networks mm-hmm. than CBS. I see what you mean. You know, yeah. CSI. Yes. You know, Season 6 <laughs> yeah. You're not going to Reinvent the wheel on that No
0: It's pretty much set up Exactly how it is And showrunners do Kind of run yeah. it And write it They have much more control in American On, on American much TV Much more Much yeah. more I but
2: mean they've probably uh, Created the whole show mm. You know with a bible Yeah You know with a whole bible Of yeah. how things are going to look How characters are going to act yeah. And it's been commissioned On that basis So you're not going to Pitch up and do episode 9 And turn it into A Tarkovsky movie Exactly It's not going to
0: work No No absolutely And speaking of Bible Bibles and speaking of pictures, is what did you present to someone like Kira Knightley? Do you come with anything already prepared? You come with anything to watch, or is it just you talking to her about the project? Yeah, it's me talking to. I mean, she will have watched Testament of Youth, of course. Looking
2: back on it, I think she clearly really wanted this role. You know, because I know she said to her agent on the way back for our first meeting, "I'm going to do this." Great. So I think it was just about testing the chemistry with myself and the lovely producer Jack mm-hmm. and, 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 and making sure that wouldn't be a problem mm. and then signing up for the role. If an actor is trying to strategically work out their career moves, and there are actors I know because I've met them who are very clearly doing that. Mm. You know, what's going to be a box office hit? What should I be doing? Then you're, you are much more being auditioned than, than the case of Keira Knightley because they're trying to work out is this film going to be good for me? Yes. If they just love the role, yeah, they're half—they're really more than halfway there. You mm. know, they—they they actually really want to do it, and they've emotionally really engaged with it already. They've probably yeah. had conversations with their agent already, yep. Yep. and with you know their partner. Yes, this great role came in. Uh-huh. You know, so they—they're they, excited. Yeah, and you sense that excitement in the room. Mm. But I've had you know meetings with actors, and they're clearly just deciding—is it something that they? ought to do or they're going through the motions of meeting you
0: right and they're not sure whether they want to do it or not they're absolutely. just seeing and testing the waters
2: absolutely and you don't really know whether their agent wants them to do it, right but their agent
0: might have said look have a meet anyway yeah. yeah but do you go in do you prepare anything in terms of your mind that you know how what you particularly want to say definitely definitely okay. but in a way by that point you've already pitched to the producers to get onto the film of course you have you, know, yeah, you may yeah. have pitched
2: to in this instance to fox, fox yeah. you know you may have you know, you have talked, you'd have thought about the film a lot and why I'm passionate about it and what I think the film can express and what it's about. Mm. Those things I will have said to the producer, but obviously that you slightly shifted it for Kira because it's specifically about her contribution to the role. Yeah. Um, but you have to prep. I always, I prep for everything. If it's something I really want, I will definitely read the script at least three times before, you know, a Skype call or a meeting. Mm. Um because you, the first time I read it, just for you know, is is this is this an interesting story? Am I am I feeling I'm turning the pages? Is it does it feel like something I want to get to the end of? And then the second time I read it, it's I begin to make a few notes, and then the third time I sort of drill down even more and just go right. What are the things that I absolutely want to express in this meeting, and um, and also. I'm quite slow, my memory is not brilliant. So it so sort of takes me 3
0: times for the script to get in my head. Mm-hmm yeah no, that makes sense. I, no totally i get yeah. that yeah it's hard there's yeah. too many characters there's bits and pieces yeah. going on I, I often write things down so yeah. i'll write the scenes in little bullet points so, so i understand this so i could it, weirdly well look at that or not it goes in my head much yeah. easier especially when you've got a friend who asks to read the script that's what I'd, i'll go okay i'll just write little bullet points and then mm. when i'm talking to them i go oh and that point and that Great idea. really really helps Great idea. um Okay, so let's get on to on set of the aftermath because, you know, mm. the film is out now and you can go see it in, in pretty much most yeah. places. Yeah. Let's talk about what the film's about. Yeah, well, the film is about a British officer who
2: travels to Hamburg at the end of the Second World War and his job is to help bring Germany out of its dreadful state. You know, it's just been bombed by the, by the British and the Americans. It's in a terrible state. And he invites his British wife over and she's lost her child in the London Blitz. So she comes over really hating Germans. And unbeknownst to her, the Kira Knightley character, her husband has requisitioned or taken over a house, uh, a beautiful house, and allowed the Germans who are in the house, instead of throwing them out, put in, putting them in a camp, to move upstairs. So she's got this really uncomfortable situation where she's coming to Germany and she's going to have to live in the same house as the people she hates and despises. And over the course of the film she starts to warm towards this German father and his daughter, played by Alexander Skarsgård, and and in the end sort of fall in love with him. And in in the end of the movie, she has to kind of make a choice between her husband and the German guy. Who's she going to go with? Rachel. Hello, Lewis. Look at you. They're still finding bodies. There's chaos out there. This house is being requisitioned by the British government. This is just your house. Aber wir haben uns. Hey Colonel Morgan, please come inside. This my wife.
0: My daughter and I will stay out of your way until we move to the camp. What if we let them stay on?
1: You mean live with them? There may not be an outward show of hatred, but it's there below the surface.
0: During the war, did you ever hope for a German victory? Did the bombing affect the health of you and your family? It affected the health of my wife. She died in the firestorm. I'm so sorry. You didn't tell me what I was walking into. This isn't how it was supposed to be.
2: None of this is how it is supposed to be.
0: Please don't go.
2: I had a job to do.
1: A girl. The least you could do is pay her a compliment. Yes, of course. Something's changed. Be
0: careful. That's all. They don't like us. I never thought that I could be happy like this. Come with me. This is what you wanted. To new beginnings.
2: So it's very much a film about reconciliation and compassion and, um, and and reawakening, actually, after the devastation of the Second World War. Um, so it speaks very much to our time. You know, we're very, the growth of nationalism, the growth of boundaries, immigration, migrants. It's, it's about how do we get human compassion in the world. And um, that's what the film, I love that idea. And um, so we shot a month in Prague mm-hmm. and then we shot a month in Hamburg. So Prague was everything but the house.
0: How did you go about the period stuff then? Because obviously nowadays there's drain pipes, there's bits and pieces that don't look period. How do you go about? Well, the, well Prague that was work. pretty good for that. Yes. Prague has
2: old bits, and and you paint out those elements. But but you know it's it's definitely got an old. And there's a big ruined sugar factory that we used as the ruins. Mm. Um, so that's fine because obviously you sh- you, sh- you choose locations where there's going to be as little work as possible in that direction. Um, Interestingly, the exterior of the house is outside Prague. But as soon as you step over the threshold, the interior is Hamburg. So it's a combination of outside, inside, if you like. So there we actually juxtapose the two. Because Hamburg, although it's a very beautiful city, it's really rebuilt. It was so badly bombed. And it's a really affluent city. It's about, I think it's the fourth richest city in Europe. Mm. It's not a lot there to shoot exterior-wise. But it did have this lovely interior. and We had a million euros from the hamburg film foundation nice so it meant that we were obliged if you like to shoot a month in hamburg so felt the right decision was to shoot the house there right uh, and everything else was czech republic i could have divvied it up a different way mm. but it was in the end that felt like the right way
0: how do you choose where to shoot locations is it sometimes is it a- amalgamation of things because i hear i imagine you could have shot anywhere you know you could have found did you have a look at a lot of places
2: yeah you do you do uh, it's instinct you know i mean you, you you know you need to know obviously you, you know how the scene needs to play mm. so there's a big ballroom scene in the film you know there's a beautiful cafe we, which we had slightly renovated for us actually but you know i needed enough space i needed corridors for her to run down and you know so you're you're looking for a place that sort of works for the blocking that you're going to be putting into it. Yes. Is, is it going to perform, you know, in the right way? Is it going to give actors space to
0: move? Mm. Yeah. And talking of the actors then, how was that working with, you know, three at the moment very big a-list stars how was that for you in terms of setting it up and making sure their relationships work together and did you get more rehearsal time no no not at all i mean
2: you get you get less you get less because they're busy they're on other films they come straight off their film but a little bit over christmas like a day and a half that was about it um i spoke to one of them much more jason because he was a bit more free and available and he came to london anyway to meet army officers because he wanted that to, you know because he is playing an army officer so we had time to have you know dinner and stuff but um no i mean you're you're pretty well working it out on set right which i don't love to no no but it's amazing how what could be quite intimidating falls away you know as you're making scenes and you're you're, you're creating scenes you there isn't time to be intimidated i mean even look i I was a bit intimidated the first day or two. sure. But after that, and and they're actually, to be fair, a bit intimidated of me Mm. because, you know, I have a lot of power to go. I want you to go over there. You know, it's not like I'm not able to say what I want. Mm. They want, the thing is that however well known the actor is, they want to hear what you want. I did a sex scene in the the aftermath and Kira Mm. said to me, look, best way of shooting sex scenes for me is that you narrate what you want us to do. Because two things happen then. First of all, uh, we don't feel we're just making it up, which is really self-conscious. And secondly, we hear what you want. We know where the other person's going. So, you know, our noses don't bash. Yes. Because we, you've said to Alexander Skarsgård, go down to my navel and yeah. kiss me. on my I know where he's going so I can react. It's like a stunt. Mm. It's just like a stunt. It's like the same way you rehearse a stunt. And that was a really interesting way and a really good way, actually, to get to a sex scene. It also detoxified it, you know, because you it was technical. And if it's technical, they, know, they don't have to get worried. But I make that example only to show that, you know, they need to know what you want. Otherwise, they don't know what to do because mm. they could play the scene anyway. And they come with a version of the scene that they've gone through in their head. And that's great. And it's really good to do a version of what they want to do yeah. um, because it may be brilliant. Yeah. Uh, but, but they also want to feel that you're walking away happy. Yes, because they've got if you're not if you're walking away and they feel you're unhappy how can they have trust that that scene's going to work mm. because the one person who's monitoring it doesn't seem to be happy about it so so the, nobody wants a director to be uh, angst-ridden and move on to the next scene <laughs> that's not where people want you to be
0: no. no what did you bring from Testament of Youth and you brought into this film? what did you change potentially as a director what did you
2: Well, uh, br- I think I was a little bit Firmer, mm-hmm. you know, the things that hadn't worked on test, you know, because you always look at the things that haven't worked. Yes. <laughs> the things absolutely. that, you know, maybe some critics have said, you know, I was a bit more, I suppose I was a bit more confident because I'd done a film. Mm-hmm. But I also said to the producer of The Aftermath, you know, if you want to take responsibility in the edit for things to change, you need to be there on the set. Mm. No point you're not being there for the shoot then going into the edit and saying, oh, have you got another way? It's like, no, we haven't. Uh Whereas if you're there, you feel that we corrected it in the moment. Yes. You have to take the producer on your journey because the producer is going to be quite under a lot of pressure from the financiers to change things or shorten things or whatever because, you know, focus groups, whatever. And if they've been on your journey, they're your ally, Mm. you know, because they've invested in that journey. It's actually become our journey. And you need the producer to be your ally in the edit. You don't want them having secret little phone calls with the financiers or the studio going, yeah, yeah, leave it with me and I'll get them to change it. It's like you
0: want them to be on your side. And before we go, and before we wrap up, let's talk about mm-hmm. Mother, Father, Son. I absolutely adore this Good. show. It's, it's on BBC Two? It's on BBC Wednesdays Two. Wednesdays at nine? Yeah. And it is wonderful. The actors are incredible mm-hmm. you know Richard Gere you've got Helen, Helen McCrory yeah, yeah. He Sarah, Lancashire. Sarah Lancashire and Billy Howell and Billy Howell now Billy Howell I'd not seen him in anything before oh, right, right, right. and I had to look him up yeah as I said and he was just he's wow because it must be it must have been really difficult to cast someone who can play this arrogant worried Character to mm. then suddenly turn it all and have this stroke mm. and play mm. that. I mean, that must be difficult to find someone who could. Yeah, I mean, I'd be good. honest and say
2: he was cast before I, I mean, I'm the lead director, but sometimes they have to go ahead and cast before finding their director. Um, so he was cast, Richard wasn't, and Sarah wasn't, Helen and Billy were. Right. Uh, yeah, I mean, I watched his audition tapes. I mean, he's in a. St- you, honestly, anybody who wants to see a young actor astonishingly good young actor should should just watch some of Mother Father Son yeah because he is ju- his emotions are so close to the surface i mean it 's like his whole face is like moving his muscularity of his face is moving it 's everywhere it's just um, yeah, he's astonishing. And he can self-induce vomit. In episode one, he has this stroke. Yeah, was he actually... Yeah, that's how well, his, he can store liquid that's in horrible. his chest. That's horrible. It's disgusting. It's disgusting. It? We offered him, you know, chicken soup yeah, or whatever yeah. they do. He like, said, no, no. And he can do that two or three times.
0: So horse riding, <laughs> French... <laughs> And vomiting. (laughs) Imagine that on this TV. We're looking for someone who can vomit on cue, please. That's right. Who's a great actor who can play this. All right. So before you leave us, if you can give any advice, I know you've given so much now to a first-time director or someone stepping up, what would would a little bit of advice be? Be really clear about
2: where you want to end up. Uh, In other words, you know, if you want to be uh, a TV director... It's not necessary that you necessarily have your own voice, you know, because you're going to have to sort of. The skill of a television drama director is to take material and deliver it in the uh, sort of within the brief, if you like, of what the producers and the writer and the BBC or Channel 4, or whatever, want it to be and do it in a really professional, slick, and compelling manner. Obviously, if you want to end up doing films, then developing a voice and, and being and having something quite specific the way you want to express, that is the only thing people are going to be looking for, is if we were to give you money to make a film, what what would you do with that to make it feel like there's an auteur behind this, this project? And I think that is something you need to concentrate on, and don't be scared of it. Don't be scared of that voice. If anything, be bolder and bolder than you ever could imagine, because... Being bold is what nowadays people in the cinema look. So, if you think, take a film like The Favorite, which is a period mm-hmm. drama, you know, there's a director, Yorgos Lottimos, who is like not afraid to be bold. Now, of course, you can come down, it could be a car crash being bold, mm-hmm. but, but there are too many people being neutral to, 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 for you to afford to be neutral. Uh, you need to take that genre and do it in a sort of as heightened and as personal a way as you can. And I, that would be my advice.
0: That is wonderful advice. Uh, This has been fantastic, James. Thank you so much. Pleasure. It's honestly, I've loved listening to you talk. It's been really, really good. So, remember why you're doing it. If you're doing it for the love, then brilliant. Go out there and make your indie film. If you're doing it for the money, good luck. Because, you know, it's a, it's a <laughs> totally different statement. Yeah. remember, get out there and make your indie film. Do whatever you can. Listen to James's advice here and do it. The Aftermath, starring Kira Knightley, uh, Jason Clarke and Alexander Skarsgård, is out now in selected cinemas across the UK and the US and across the world. So, do check it out. And Mother, Father, Son, starring Richard Gere, is on. TV now. I'm sure you can find it. James, Kent, thank you very much for your time. Thanks, Charles. Okay, everyone, take care. We will see you next Tuesday as always. Until then, keep striving forward to making your indie film or your big feature film or your T V series. Take care. Bye bye.